We have an enemy that is at work trying to devour souls, and he will, he will devour unstable souls. Before I begin the studies, again, we're thankful for everyone that's here, thankful for you that took time to come out, and we pray that these lessons will be a benefit to you and will help to guide you in the times that's ahead for us. In these lessons, I would like again, before I begin, to give credit to the following, Flavius Josephus in his writings of War of the Jews, Encyclopedia Britannica from a lot of things from there, the pulpit commentaries with their descriptions and so on, History of the Christian Church, Volume 2, the End Time Magazine, the National and International Religious uh, Report, the Worldwide Church of God and End Time Literature from there, the Bible, and most of all, for the Holy Spirit, again was able to lead me through my preconceived notions, ideas, and opinions, and keep me in the Bible. Before we begin, you'll be, we'll be dealing with Revelation 6th chapter, and also our parallel scriptures will be the 24th chapter of St. Matthew. We'll not, we'll not reiterate what we went over before, but I would like to take a little time to read to you from 2 Timothy, the third chapter, some old familiar scripture that we know, but we really don't put much uh, uh, emphasis on, especially in these days, which we should. Paul warns Timothy and tells Timothy to warn others, this know also that in the last days, I don't think there's any doubt in very few of our minds that these are the last days, peerless time shall come. And then it describes what's going to be happening in these last days. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, and from such and from all of these, turn away. Very good description of our world today. Very good description of what is happening every day in our world. And somehow, Christendom looks at it in awe, wonder, and amazement and wondering what is happening. Well, Scripture is being fulfilled right before our very eyes, and we're paying very little attention to it. So we want to try our best to shed some light upon some of the things that is happening and what is going to happen first before anything else really does. Now, again, in Revelation, John at times is on the earth viewing the things that's happening in heaven. Other times he's in the spirit or in the heavens looking upon things that's happening in the earth. And Revelation, the fourth chapter, indicates at this particular time that he's in the spirit or looking at things that's happening in the earth. We parallel prophecies. Anytime prophecies parallel and agree with one another, you can pretty well say that those are the things we want to heed. And our scriptures in Revelations, John sees a white horse, he sees a red horse, he sees a black horse, he sees a pale horse. And Matthew 24 describes and reveals what these are in simple form. White horse, false Christ, Red horse wars and rumors of wars culminating in the last great war. Black horse, of course, is famines, which will scourge the earth. 
and of course the pale horse is pestilence and death. At this particular time, John has been sent to the Isle of Patmos. They tried to boil him, and he wouldn't boil. And so they sent him to get him out of their hair uh, with his persistence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They sent him to the Isle of Patmos in exile. And it was there, of course, that God wanted him all the time because out away from the uh, noise and din of the present world where God could speak to him, concerning your day and mine, telling him things that's going to happen. And John in the spirit then at that time uh, saw uh, somebody and in their right hand he saw a book that's written within and without, written on the backside, and this book was sealed with seven seals. I think John must have been aware that inside that book was something very pertinent to humanity at the close of the dispensation. And... Uh, the voice of the angel said, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And John began to weep. And John began to cry because no man was found worthy to open the book. And then, of course, steps forward. One of the elders said, Don't cry and don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David, has prevailed to open the book and loose the seals thereof. And, of course, the lion of the tribe of Judah is later on described as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So the only one that can reveal anything in your day and mind is Jesus Christ himself. Whatever he's already revealed, and also he's still revealing things in this day and hour. Things that's shrouded in mystery, Jesus Christ is able to bring revelation to them. And so he sees the opening of the first four seals in which we're going to deal with he sees in the first seal the thing that comes first, that the world must first look for. I want, to, I want to emphasize to you that although these things have been from almost in this inception of Christianity, they have continued to get worse and worse till finally they're going to culminate in the last great antichrist, false prophet, beast out of the sea or whatever you might call him. And so beginning at the first verse of Revelation 6, the book was opened, and John said, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. Come and see. In other words, come and look and understand. Write it down, John. And preserve it, allow it to be preserved until the end time, where individuals can see and understand at the very beginning what is going to take place in this world is filled with hatred and wrath and bitterness and division and envy and strife that is preparing the way for this very first rider of the white horse. And he says, And I saw and behold a white horse, he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now the first horseman of the apocalypse or revelation was described just as we read it. But the identity of that first horseman has caused more confusion and more consternation, I believe, among Bible critics than any of the other three horsemen. The majority of the Bible commentaries pretty much seemingly on the ball and correct in determining the meaning of the red horse black horse and pale horse 
that follow in Revelation 6 and is quite clear about these individuals' identity. But the first horse is almost universally misunderstood simply because scholars have neglected the clarifying words of Christ the Revelator in Matthew 24, 4, and 5. Before any of these others can ride, this one must have had to ride. And in Matthew, as well as others, it said, Take heed that no man deceive you. In other words, there will be man's deception first. A deceivable spirit that goes out to deceive all the earth. And he says, Take heed that no man deceive you. He says, Many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. And then he says, You're simply going to have to turn away from that. In other words, he is admonishing us to know the truth. Be settled upon the power of God, the rock of our salvation. Understand who you are, what you are, and why you are here. And understand the things that is ahead. And mankind misses that, in my opinion, simply because we use human interpretations. And the confusion comes when we look ahead to Revelation's 19th chapter to the description of another white horse which simply announces the glorious second coming of Christ on a white horse. And they have been erroneous and made an error in equating the white horse of Revelation 6 with the true Christ of chapter 16, chapter 19. Now this basic misunderstanding takes many forms. Uh, you'll hear this a lot in many different areas if you're a student of Bible prophecy or if you read after these things. Some say the white horse in Revelation 6 represents worldwide preaching of the gospel to conquer men's minds. Of course, some of them say that it's an angel preparing the way for Christ. Some say it represents Christian government that seems to conquer heathen nations in the name of Christ. And some say it's a church. And some say it represents Elijah preparing the way for Christ. And some say it represents the second coming, while others think that it's a flashback on the first coming. And nearly all commentators that I have read after label the white horse rider as Jesus Christ or of some of his work on earth. But what does Christ himself say about the white horse? And believe it or not, he prophesied this very deception and misunderstanding would occur. Isn't that just like our God? He knows how human minds work. <laughs> he knows the direction that they are going to take. And so first off, he warns about this blunder that individuals are going to make. He warns about this misconception because it's going to be a deception in the mind of man. Now, there, are, first off, before there's any real thing, as far as the Bible is concerned, there is first a counterfeit. I don't know if we're aware of that or not, but we ought to be. Before the coming of Christ and his reality, there is a counterfeit that appears before he does that seems to demand the attention and worship of all those who uh, feel like that they know God. Now the very first world development that Jesus Christ warns about in his discourse, uh, discourse in Matthew 24 is the advent, advent of many false preachers, many false ministers, individuals who do not understand the Bible, who do not care to understand the Bible, who put us out good things, prophesy good things while the world's falling apart around us. 
Christianity is losing its grip uh, upon, uh, upon the world. I just read, and I have a, a parcel from a paper here where the church is losing by the thousands. They've, they've lost the baby boomers, and there's no way they can get them back. And it's nothing that the church has done other than they say it offers us nothing. Now, can you imagine a church filled with the power of God that can offer individuals out here nothing? What has happened to Christendom? What has happened in our daily walk of life that doesn't show individuals out there any different in our life than in their own lives, whereby when they come into the house of God, all they see is just sometimes confusion and sometimes uh, carelessness in, in Bible living and sometimes rebellion and attributes of the enemy that comes in there. And they come in this and they say, we got that in the world. We need something someplace that can offer us something the world cannot offer us. Well, that ought to be the church, saints. I said that ought to be the church. Because there's no other, uh, nothing in this universe outside of that that can offer humanity the things that it needs. But there's going to be a lot of false ministry, false prophets, misleading and, and deceiving, not just a few. My Bible says many, many. Now what's he talking about? The sinners in the world? Not necessarily. He's trying to describe what is happening in the church world today. He's trying to tell us what is going to take place with sometimes once stable saints of God who knew the power of God, understood what it was, walked in that, and then allowed the cares of this world to separate them from holy living of God and accept almost anything that come along as long as it tickled their ears and scratched their back and made their life seem an easy life. Live like you want to live and still claim to be a Christian. That's the hue and cry of individuals today. Go to a lot of churches, that's what you hear. They don't demand any change in life. They don't demand any change in, in our attitudes. Don't demand any change in, in our faithfulness to God. Everything's just fine. Confess Jesus Christ. Live the way you want to. And this, again, is misleading and it's deceiving many where we'll not be prepared for the scourge that is going to come upon the face of the whole earth. God's people need to understand who God is. You see, this condition began immediately after Christ's death and his resurrection. The apostle Paul warned that the spirit of iniquity was already working while he was writing those things. This type of spirit was already working. You follow the Apostle Paul in the establishment of his churches. You watch him establish that on the fundamental principles of God and leave a good church. And then you watch that church disintegrate as wolves in sheep's clothing come in and devour the saints of God and delude the saints of God. And while Paul was writing his letters to those individuals, that spirit was already working in the churches he had established. And it continued to work throughout and it still works in our world to do today. Jude, the younger brother of Christ, exhorted early Christians. Listen to what he said in the early times. Earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Now I ask you if we have ever researched what the faith really is that we're supposed to contend for. Or have we been deluded and deceived really as to what the faith is? 
that we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Now here's why we must do that. For there are certain men crept in unawares. Now what does that mean? It simply means that whatever leadership they might have had was simply not aware and not in touch with God in the spirit to discern what was entering into their congregations. Their eyes were closed, their minds were barren, their ears could not hear, and so these people come in, take their place there, and nobody is aware that they're there. And all the same time, they were sowing discord and motivating and moving lives and individuals and deceiving those individuals and telling them, in essence, what Paul preached, what Peter preached, was of no consequence. doesn't have to be done like that. We can do it the way we want to do it. Crept in unawares, but they were ordained of old to this condemnation. Jesus knew they would be their ungodly men that would turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. There is not a greater thing in this world ever given to humanity than the grace of Almighty God. And friend, listen, there's nothing any greater than that. It was worked out on the cross while Jesus suffered, bled, and died. But these individuals are not ashamed to turn His grace into lasciviousness. What does that mean? It means shameless conduct. It means a conduct not, be, not, not befit of the grace of God. It means individuals that care no more about the grace of God and the blood of Christ than they do the blood of a chicken. Individuals that simply have gone so far and been deluded so much that the grace of God means nothing other than to trample it under our feet. God help us tonight, saints of God, to recognize the grace of God is what has ransomed us from the powers of sin and evil. And give us the chance of eternal life and eternal salvation. Let's treat it gentle. Let's be nice to the grace of God. He's been good to us. Yes, He has. Look at your life. Where did He bring you from? You didn't deserve that. That was unmerited favor of God, which is the grace of God. We've described the grace of God often, and I want to describe it to you. Uh, the difference between mercy and grace. Now, mercy is, in a natural setting, is when you're out on the road and you have a flat tire and you don't have a jack and it's raining and uh, somebody comes along and loans you, or that you loans you their jack to change your tire. That's mercy. He has mercy on you. But grace is another thing. You've got in the same setting. You've got a flat tire. You're out in the rain. Uh, you don't have a jack. And this man comes along and he uses his jack and he changes your tire for you while you sit in your car outside the rain. That's grace. <laughs> and that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. We deserve nothing, did nothing, but his grace come and covered us all and did it all for us while we sit in the comfort and safety of our own being. So let's be careful about the grace of God. But these individuals do that. And Jude said it's going to come. First century, two Christians witnessed a counterfeit Christianity creeping in, deceiving many. Uh, they increased in intensity and have over the years and will until the whole world becomes deceived about the true message of Christ. And by the time of the end, 
The Bible says that Satan, the devil, deceiveth the whole world. There's just one group of people that will not be deceived. And that will be the living church of God. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord. Not everybody that puts a name over their door. Not everybody that says they're Baptist, Methodist, Christian, Pentecostal, whatever they are. It's not those. It's those that have died out to themselves and live for Christ. And ask God to let them understand their life, purify their life, and get ready for His coming. He said He's coming after a bride that's made herself ready. She has washed herself in the blood of the Lamb, used the Word of God to cleanse her and clean her up and get her ready for the coming of the Lord. But there is a misconception, and I don't think there's any greater sign of this universal misconception of Scripture than the misunderstanding of who the first horsemen of Revelations actually represent. It throws the whole scheme of the Bible off if we continue to insist uh, that this uh, is Jesus Christ at his coming. It throws everything else off. Now, we're going to go into that a little bit more in detail. Now, it's true that the rider of the white horse represents a Christ. This rider of the white horse we just read to you, he does represent a Christ, not the Christ. He represents the false Christ. It's true that the first horseman represents a gospel. And he represents a church, but it's a false gospel, and it's a false church, and he does this all in the name of Jesus Christ. But in truth, it's a deception, and it's counterfeit. Jesus Christ himself says so, and I think if you'll read Matthew 24, and I would advise you to do that, he says so, and the Apostle Paul amplifies Christ's words very plainly in 2 Corinthians 11, Brother Jack, I'm going to get it right, 11, 3, and 4, and 13, and 15. And this is what he says. I fear. You see, he was talking to Christians. He was talking to established churches. And his writings was this, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Now listen. If somebody that had implanted the gospel with the authority and power of the apostle Paul, and he's afraid that his work is going to be burnt and destroyed. Think about the fear that ought to grip the ministers of today in this day and hour. We ought to be concerned, and I, I never want to take the pulpit and try to deceive anybody whatsoever. And we ought to be concerned about where we're leading individuals, how we're causing them to feel. And Paul says, but I fear less by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtility. He's slick. Now, he's a lot smarter than you and I are. And if we ever get the idea that we're a match for the devil, we're wrong. The only thing we can match him with is the indwelling presence of Almighty God. <laughs> That's the only thing that is greater than the power of the enemy. We don't stand a chance. He's thousands of years old. He's got all this experience of deception, and he knows how to do it. He knows your weak points. He knows what he can do to get at you. He knows what he can do to destroy you. And it's only through the living presence of God in our life do we stand a chance whatsoever. So a prayer life is necessary, isn't it? And a life worth living. We ought to have a prayer life. And he says, I, I'm afraid lest Satan, begu Satan beguiled Eve because of his subtlety. He, he appealed to her thinking. <laughs> he appealed to what she wanted and desired. And he said, show your minds. You see, here's where he starts, right up here. 
just starts right here. He puts it in your mind. He put it in Eve's mind, and then it begins to take root, and it grows. And the first thing you know, you'll be doing that. That's put there. So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's not hard, saints, for us to understand what God wants out of us. A good, old-fashioned reading of the Bible will tell you what type of a life Christ wants us to live. It is simple. It's not a mysterious thing. So he said, I'm afraid that your minds be corrupted from the simplicity that is Christ. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted. You see, what he's saying there is don't be deceived by something else. Realize that I have established you on the basics of what it's like. I have established you with my word, which is the word of God. And if somebody else comes around preaching you another Jesus, you just forget it. Or another gospel, you just say, I'm established on the gospel of Almighty God. Don't allow him to destroy us. For he says, here's the reason. For such are false apostles and deceitful workers transforming themselves unto apostles of Christ and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light therefore it is no great thing if his ministers should also be transformed into ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works now your Bible identifies Satan's ministers as professing Christians. You understand that? Professing Christians. They don't appear satanic, of course. They appear as angels of light. Many times offering you new revelations. Offering you new ways of living without problems and troubles. A new way of gaining fame and fortune just simply by believing God and having a positive approach. They're offering you all of these things and they appear as angels of light and they actually look like and act like the white horse of Christ's return. But in truth, it's a clever counterfeit of the true Christ which is going to appear before Christ comes. The Bible says he's going to deceive the whole world. The whole world, not just the United States of America. But I sincerely believe, and I'll just put this in, that God has placed the United States of America here to learn and to understand and to be what we ought to be. Now, he leaves that up to us, of course, as to what direction we're going to follow and what path that we're going to follow. But I believe he has allowed us revelations, power, anointing, revelations of his word far greater than any other continent, any place else, so we would have the truth and not sell it. So we could be established. And, of course, knowing that, of course, what better place to release false teachings and false religion. Now Paul is not warning us against obvious false religions such as paganism or, or Eastern cults or outright Satan worship or bizarre semi-Christian cults but he's warning us against a very clever subtle counterfeit. Now counterfeits kind of like counterfeit money attempt to be as close as possible to the original. 
And only those that are experts can discern whether this money is bogus or not. And might I say this, only the elect of God, only those who have sold their life to Jesus Christ and have bid this world farewell in its living is going to know or be able to detect whether this is the Christ or not. He will so parallel himself in this area with such love and concern that this world will grab after him. We're already coming into a time with religious divisions so great that the world wants somebody to correlate and bring all this together. It's almost ready for almost anything to come along. We're sitting right on the verge of the ability of the false prophet to come in and reorganize religion and form his own type religion and humanity is ready almost to embrace that. Very few individuals know very little about it. Go to a lot of churches, they don't even know whether there's a false prophet or a beast or they don't know that there's peerless times. They don't know that any, anything's going to happen ready for this, this charismatic individual to appear on the scene offering what no other man has been able to offer. You see, as far as the Christian is concerned, if somebody comes with complete erroneous doctrines to us, we know better. We know better than that. But let him mix a little error with truth. And most of us don't know any better. Unless we know the word of God. Just be a little bit erroneous and mix that with the truth. And the majority of Christendom will swallow that. Now, if they just come right out and, and say there is not a Jesus Christ, the blood don't mean anything, man, we're fighting mad. We're ready to go. But you let them come in real soft and subtle and begin to make little points of repentance like it's not necessary and begin to be little God and begin to take away the need for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ just little by little by little. And he slips it out from under us. And we don't know this. And the majority of Christendom don't know that. Now, I want to compare the two white horses, and I want to show you why I believe that this first one has to be the counterfeit to the false prophet. If you will carefully compare Revelation 6, 1, 2, and you mark these down with Revelations 19, 11, 15, you're going to see that the first horseman is no more than a clever counterfeit Christ himself. One close enough to fool the majority, but not the elect. Not the elect. Now, let's be careful with that word, all right? Let's be careful with the word elect. Everybody is not elect, all right? It takes something to be the elect of God. Now, notice first that the returning Christ in Revelation 19 brandishes a sword out of his mouth not a bow in his hand as in Revelation 6. Now the sword is the word of God. Now the word of God is called in symbolic language a two-edged sword. Piercing asunder. In other words, it's going to be hewing and cutting. It's going to cut sin from our life if we let it. It's going to pierce asunder the evils in our life. It's not going to be a namby-pamby type of a gospel where mankind can live as he wants to, the way he wants to. In the last days, the Word of God is going to be sharper than any two-edged sword cutting asunder. Yes. Humanity is going to be 
fearful of joining themselves to the bride of Christ because they realize that the word of God will show their lives to other lives and to other individuals. There's coming a time when evil really is going to be called out. It's not going to be allowed to set in the congregation as it is today through the mercy of God. But when this time comes, he's going to come with a sword in his hand. Now Christ is reproving and will be reproving nations with his word while the counterfeit horseman comes with an entirely different type and source of power. Now, I did some study, and I'm not going to go uh, real deep into that, but how many of you have ever saw uh, this little person they call little, little uh, what do you call him, a little, little babe-like, and he's got an air in his hand, and he's called Cupid? <laughs> And what he do, does is shoots darts in you, and you almost, and then then you're in love. That's the way you become in love. Uh, did Did you know that there is something to that far more sinister than we realize? Did you know that Cupid was a Latin name for the god of love, Eris, and that uh, that love was simply Thelo, which means the god of desire and lust. Did you know that when you look at that and you see that little fellow as innocent as he is? And he's shooting arrows. Well, this, this is exactly the attribute of that God as he was there. And he is signified with a bow in his hand. In other words, indicating that lustful, sinful desire. And that's all you need. And he does it in the form of love. Have you watched? Have you watched? how that is taking over our world today, how our young people don't know the difference between lust and love. When they say we want to have love, they don't even know what the word is. And this thing is infiltrated. Oh, it's not just young people, it's old people in life. They, they simply, simply do not know what it is. It's love as far as they're concerned. But this is the God of Eris, our desire. And this is what he comes with. This is his attribute. This is his symbol. Oh, what a loving world. And it's all right to love one another. <laughs> okay? And, and it will increase and increase and increase. And this is what we have to look out for. This is what is causing. The spirit of it is already working. As one of the writers said, spirit of the Antichrist is already working. It's already working. I think sometimes we don't even understand what has taken place in our churches. What has happened in our families. Why so much pregnancy? And why so much adultery? And why so much fortification? It's because this type of spirit has already come with a bow in his hand. Love and peace and joy and, and, and just, just, just everything is just fine. And it simply has initiated... A world that we're living in. God helped the church to recognize that. Now also, now there's a difference. God's word comes reproving. God's word comes not allowing. God's word comes against that. This word comes and says it'll be fine. It'll be fine. No resistance. Hey, there's hardly any resistance from the pulpit, hardly any resistance from, from the laity, hardly any resistance any place. No resistance in the family, 
parents are almost afraid to counsel their children. Let me tell you something. There's something out here that some of us better get a hold of our children because there's something running rampant in this earth that is bringing death. On this type of spirit says, it's just fine. It's just fine. Embraces homosexuality, lesbianism, almost anything goes. Churches right now are voting to see whether they are going to allow homosexual priests or, or ministers in, in, in their congregations. What type of spirit, what do we have? A forerunner of this individual that comes with a bow in his hand that simply says it's fine. It's just philo, it's lust and it's desire, whatever you want. And that's not only sexual desire, that is whatever we desire in our heart that we want, we can get. And God tells us some of the things we're not supposed to have. Okay? Yes, he does. Now, there's also a different time setting in Revelation 6, contrasted with chapter 16, that proves it could not be the same Christ. In fact, the two could hardly be farther apart as far as the time flow in the book of Revelations. The white horse is the first seal opened. It's the very first event in the unfolding drama of the end time. Christ's second coming, on the other hand, ushers in the end of this drama. It's all over when he comes. It's just beginning when this man begins to ride and this horseman begins to appear on the scene. It's just the beginning of all of these things that's going to take place. But when Christ comes, he's putting an end to all of this. So you see, the time setting has something to do with it. His second coming ushers in the end, the last portion of the last seal, just prior to the thousand-year reign of peace of the saints of God on the earth is when Christ comes. The two events are years apart in their fulfillment. They could not, therefore, be the same horse and rider since they're so widely separated. Also, there's a time sequence. Matthew 24 also reveals that counterfeit Christ appear first on the second coming of Christ follows many other signposts and is the last event to unfold. The general condition of false religion appears first after Christ's death. Even appears before wars and disease and famine and all of this and it has increased for 1900 years. But remember, remember this, that Christ's prophetic word refers both to a long-term world condition and this one uh, uh, is concerning the end time. Very specific time at the end of the age. And there's an end time fulfillment. This long-term condition, the false religion we just described, is going to culminate, be fulfilled in the end time fulfillment of the white horseman of Revelation 6 in the person of the great false prophet. You can see some more about him if you read Revelations 13 and Revelation 17. Uh, that whole chapter. And from the midst of all of this, Christian sects, organ religious leaders, from all of this is going to emerge a single individual with such immense personal power and magnetism that will eclipse all others. He will rise to preeminence in the very near future. The exact year I would be foolish to think about saying anything about. But I will say this, it's closer than most of us think. We really don't know the day and the hour, but we can certainly pinpoint it's soon coming. Just prior to everything that is going to happen in the end. Now I want you to notice his description in 2 Thessalonians. and says, And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, 
and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. This powerful instrument of Satan will have unusual charisma and unusual power. He's going to dazzle the world with miracles. <laughs> you have to be careful. You see, this is why you cannot base your salvation and what you have on miracles. You have to know the Word of God. There is nothing any more important. I mean, you can speak in tongues and you ought to. You can shout until the roof falls down. And you can run the aisles as much as you want to. But unless you have buried deep within your heart the Word of God, you can be fooled. You can be and will be. It has to be in there. No wonder the devil is taking our time away from us and won't even allow us time to read the Bible. I think most of us would be ashamed if you really had to be truthful and you had to swear that you put it down right how many hours a day, or moments, or hours in a week, moments of the day that you read your Bible. I'm not going to ask you. I'm not that brave yet. <laughs> and I'm not sure you would be that truthful either. But it, it, it is a shame uh, that these things are happening. And while he's doing that, he will be mobilizing vast armies of formerly lukewarm professing Christians. He will be enlisting them in his service. This wolf in sheep's clothing is going to appear innocent. He's going to appear sincere and righteous before men. And again, only the elect. Those that have already and always been led by the Spirit of God and have been obedient to His laws will be able to recognize the true power behind these deceitful wonders. We need a church that is established upon the rock of our salvation. And after this white horseman proclaims himself to be God... His believers will go forth conquering and to conquer in the name of their God, this false prophet. And this will bring a series of religious wars. Have you ever read concerning some of the so-called religious wars fought in the name of religion? You really haven't saw anything yet as to what this man will bring about. A series dwarfing the crusades that's going to scorch the earth. And this leads directly... And it overlaps, overlaps with the next horseman that is about to ride. All three of these remaining horsemen that we will be speaking about later on uh, has to come after this one does. They have their basis upon this one, false Christian religions. And since so few understand really the first horseman, and since so few listen to Christ's interpretation, but it's a vital key to the understanding of the book of Revelation, so few do not understand what is happening in the world. Now, if you're still a part of this religious Babylon, this book of Revelations warns you, come out of her, my people. Now, listen to those words, my people. You see, Enoch hasn't given up on them yet. 
indicating that they did belong to him, and as far as God is concerned, they still belong to him. And he's saying, come out of this Babylonian system of confusion that is going to tear you down and destroy your Christian experience. You come out of that, that you be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. God is promising us something there. And if we're going to escape the following three horsemen, the world is going to have to come out from under the influence of the first horseman, false religion, which is the root and cause of war and famine and pestilence prophesied to plague all mankind. I sincerely believe that this, of course, is a call to individuals, but I sincerely believe that it is also a call to God's chosen people. That God simply is calling us, the United States of America, as well as England and others, that Denmark has already came out of the European common market. Great Britain has, uh, has said that she was going to withdraw from that, which is Bible prophecy. Had no business in there in the first place. But in order to come out of something, you had to have once been in it. All right? And so what he's saying, come out of her, my people. That's nationally speaking. It comes on down uh, to church-wise, also to individuals. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins. In other words, there's a rationale here that God is trying to say that I have some place designed for the safety of my people if they will listen to what I have to say to them. If they will heed my voice and listen to what I say, I have a place of safety. For not only these in this, but others also, which will cause a great, great exodus to begin to happen. But first of all, we've got to come out of it. And the church has got to come out of it before nationally we'll come out of it. Now we've got just about ten more minutes enough to talk just a little bit about the other horse that is following this. And he opened the second seal. I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. This is a world at war. World at war. Now, if we think we haven't. Even though Revelation 6-4 clearly interprets itself, it also gets collaboration from the parallel prophecies of Matthew 24, 6 and 7. In Jesus' own words, the second horseman represents wars and rumors of wars. But I have a question, but hasn't man always had war? To which wars is Christ referring? What is he talking about? Which wars do the second horseman represent? All war or one specific war? Well, the questions are answered in our Bible. Jesus prophesied a general condition of war on earth that would continue from his day to the very end of man's government on the earth. And you shall hear wars and rumors of wars, notice plural. But immediately after giving the the warning of many wars, he narrows it down. And he said, See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. 
Of many wars, therefore, represents the general condition of mankind. And he said, don't let it worry you over much. Christ is warned, and for nearly 6,000 years there have been alternating generations of people at war and peace, big wars, small wars, civil wars, uncivil wars. But the remaining verses of Matthew 24 and the second horseman of the uh, apocalypse of Revelation refer more than just a brush fire war. They refer to one specific end-time period of war of great magnitude, culminates in the first and last war of its kind, a war of cataclysmic proportions. There has never been a war like this war is going to be. Never, regardless of what you see in the wars that you see, never has there been one like this that will engulf the whole world. After the many wars in Matthew 24, 6, the next verse speaks of nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. This indicates world war with one group of allied nations attacking another group of nations. It just simply means more than wars and rumors of wars. And the world has already suffered through rounds one and two of a world war, but neither were of the nuclear world-killing proportion as this one we're talking about. And except those days should be shortened, there shall be no flesh saved. In other words, this simply says that they have the ability to completely annihilate man from the face of the earth and will accept divine intervention. You see, in the other world wars, World War II couldn't have been that war. We had that one little atomic blast of Hiroshima, but that's just a firecracker compared to today's hydrogen bombs. Each one hundreds and thousands of times the explosive power of the primitive A-bomb, and there was no threat of overkill in 1945 or even before, but we have that now. Stockpiles every place, immense overkill in the military stockpiles of today. Never before has there been total cosmicide or world death been at man's fingertips. He has the ability, should he push the wrong button, to annihilate man from the face of the earth. For there's not one living creature. It has never been before. See, what we're talking about at his fingertips is total destruction. He might have always had war, but never on the scale of this one, as this horseman that is riding. Never before has a man had the potential to obliterate human life from the face of the earth. And just as man has always used those in his possession, he would use this also, except for the intervention of Almighty God. Why does God intervene? Because somebody someplace is still with their horns on the altar saying, God, spare your people. Somebody someplace is praying that God would intervene in the course of mankind. And he's promised to do that. There has to be praying people. Nuclear warheads, laser beams, chemical, biological warfare, nerve gas, heat-seeking missiles called smart bombs. We watch them operate. And they're going to increase. We sat on television and watched these things seek out their target. And we had the power to completely annihilate that little nation should we have chosen to use that. And she was trying to build that same power. May still be in. 
we don't know. But who knows what other science fiction things is going to happen. And these are weapons in the hands of the second horseman of the apocalypse. He has power to take peace from all of the earth. This involves world war, not local wars, civil wars, uh, or conventional uh, international conflicts like Korea and Vietnam and so on like that. And also notice this, the second horseman had a great sword. This certainly represents the ability to kill hundreds and millions, not just tens of millions killed in past wars. And finally notice the specific time and place of the second horseman's grizzly ride upon the earth. As the first horseman rides forth conquering and to conquer in the name of false religion, the second horseman wars quick on his heels as the means of conquest. He's got to have a vehicle. Prophecy labels the final political instrument as the beast or as what is trying to be formed now, a future ten-nation alliance which is to be formed in Central Europe. It's almost ready. How destructive will it be? Whole metropolises will be vaporized by nuclear attack. Tens and millions dying instantly. The Bible says, Thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. That's the Bible. A third part of thee shall die with pestilence, and with famine shall they be consumed in the midst of thee, and a third part shall fall with the sword round about thee, Ezekiel 5, 5 and 12. And this is a direct prophecy on how many will die as a result of the sword that's given to the second horseman, and the famine and the pestilence of the third and fourth horseman that we're going to describe in some later lessons. We have the first horseman, which is going to come in like a lamb, so to speak, He's going to gather together lukewarm Christianity, form an alliance with all of them, and then he has to have a vehicle, and he uses it. And then comes war, trying to make all religions the same, trying to make nations bend and bow, and all of that. And then with war comes famine, and with it comes death. We have two more horsemen that need to ride. And they will. But first, we have to recognize more than anything else what is working first. It is not that it's going to, it is that it is. It is. It is working. Unstable Christianity will be involved in all of this. That's why we need the Word. That's why we need understanding. That's why we ought to find it, saints. That's why we ought to find it. We ought to be tired of being patted on the back for being uh, like we are, knowing ourselves that we're not the way we ought to be in God. We ought to be tired of that. We ought to be wanting to know what will it take to be able to stand before these sadistic powers that's coming our way. If we're not Christians, we don't have a chance in the world. And if we're lukewarm Christians, we don't have any more chance either. We have to be genuine Christians. Filled with His presence and power, wanting nothing more than to be used by Him. Now friend, that means laying down a 
lot of unworldly thoughts, ideas, and opinions. That's exactly what it means if we're going to escape this. And God help us to do that. Tomorrow night at the same time, we'll saddle up another horse and get him to ride. Stand with me, would you? We pre-